the, uh, the refrain of the believer at peace with God and at peace with others. The refrain of the believer who is experiencing victory in his life is yet not I, but through Christ in me. Uh, this morning we're looking at, on Father's Day, one of the champions of the early church, a biographical approach to the life of Stephen the martyr. As I've said in this series this summer, we'll be looking at a variety of different men as presented by Luke in the Acts of the Apostles as recorded in Acts. We start with Stephen the martyr and we'll move to Philip the Evangelist next. And then, of course, we'll be looking at Peter and Paul. And then we'll be looking at Barnabas and John Mark. And so exciting days as we kind of look at the lives of these people as presented in Scripture. Fathers, for us, particularly today, we're looking at a man of conviction and courage. A man whose conviction and courage stands out. And so on Father's Day, this is, I hopefully, will be encouragement to you. I hopefully that it will give us guidance looking at his life and as, as an example for ours. We've been introduced to Stephen very early in Acts chapter 6. It was a time of conflict, not even potential conflict that was realized. There was a complaint among the Hellenists, among the Greek-speaking Jews. We'll get more into better definition of that in just a moment. That their widows were being neglected. And so when this complaint came to the apostles, the apostles went to the congregation, and there are thousands, remember now, there are probably 10,000 men in this congregation, and they said, choose seven. Out of 10,000, choose seven. By the way, out of these 10,000, all of these people were new believers who had responded to the gospel, except for the 120 and those who had been with Christ and had followed him during his ministry before his death and burial and resurrection. All of these people have come to Christ since Pentecost. So we're talking a period of weeks and months. We're not talking a period of several years later. And yet, they've been nurtured on the teaching of the disciples and their growing in their knowledge and their application of the knowledge that they already had because this target audience, these people, had been raised as faithful Jewish people. They had been raised to the traditions of their fathers to understand the law of Moses, the sacrificial system, and all that was involved in that. But we see that they chose from among themselves seven, and the first one named is a man named Stephanos, Stephen. It's a Greek name. It's a Hellenized name, which means that he was one of those Greek-speaking Jews. That comes to be important in just a little bit. He was full of faith, he's described, we saw last week, and wisdom and, and grace and power. And again, taking this from a biographical perspective, there are a few things I think that God would have us take note of and apply them to our lives as well. We aren't given a lot of details about his past and upbringing, and we aren't given any in this text, or how God even had prepared him to come to this point, but there are some things that we can learn from this text. He was a Hellenistic Jew. What does that mean? There were the Jews in Jerusalem who were Aramaic-speaking. They were the Hebrew Jews. They were the ones who had been not dispersed in the dispersion or the persecution that had come in A.D. 63, I mean B.C. 63, and the Roman dispersion. And there had been other dispersions and captivities throughout their history. But, but there were those who were devout. They were the Hebrew Jews, the Aramaic-speaking, that were in Jerusalem. But then you had other Jews who, in, in uh, B.C. 63, 63 B.C., Pompey, the Roman general, had come in and he had conquered a lot and he had taken them as slaves and moved a lot of Jews to other places. This was a Roman approach to subduing the people that they had 
conquered, they would take whole populations and relocate them to other areas to keep them under control, to disconnect them so there wouldn't be a cohesive rebellion or opposition. And many of them were actually sold into slavery. And yet later, sometimes very quickly later, they were able to purchase their freedom or they were able to win their freedom. And now we have many of them who have already come back to Jerusalem and established a synagogue there. They were faithful Jews. Don't misunderstand me. When we call them Hellenistic or Hellenist, when we call them Greek-speaking Jews, we're not saying that they're somehow second-class Jewish citizens or not quite Jewish. They are very faithful to to the law of Moses, to the practices of the temple, to the sacrifices. As a matter of fact, I would say in some extent they might be even more faithful because they were displaced and they fought, had to fight to maintain their culture. They had to fight to maintain their beliefs and to pass those beliefs down to their kids. They established synagogues and they fought to maintain their belief system and their identity as God's people, as the children of Abraham as the keepers of the oracles of God through Moses. Many had returned to Jerusalem. They'd established synagogues in which Greek was spoken, their adopted language from the places where they had been displaced. And while staying faithful to the law of Moses, they stayed faithful also to the temple practices and the Jewish faith. Now, Stephen was one of these men, possibly at Pentecost, perhaps in Solomon's portico or maybe in the temple courtyard. He had heard Peter preach or... James or John, Uh, he had heard the apostles preaching, certainly, and he may have seen Jesus at some time during Jesus' life, may have listened to him during the weeks before Jesus went to the cross. He may have been one of those at the temple that saw Jesus drive out the money changers. He may have been one of those at at the feast of the washing of the fountain where Jesus stood up and spoke to the crowds. He may have had some exposure to Jesus, but he didn't have a relationship with Christ until he came to him in repentance and faith. There is no indication that he met Jesus before Pentecost. And there's very much to indicate that he came to know Jesus, the promised Messiah, at the preaching of the Gospels. Again, in our timeline, we're talking months in his spiritual life as a child of God, not years. But what is true of all of us is also true of Stephen. For him to know Jesus... For him to know Jesus as Messiah, for him to know the forgiveness of his sin, for him to become the man that we see pictured in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, he had to come to Christ in repentance and faith. He had to come, again, as Peter has said in his sermon at Pentecost, he had to repent, metanoia, and he had to return, estrecho, to come all the way back, a, 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 a complete surrender and acknowledgement of Jesus Christ is the Messiah. We've seen his choosing. We've seen his character today. I want us to take a look at his convictions. He had to recognize in coming to Christ that though he had been brought up bringing sacrifices to the temple, on his way to the temple with his family, he probably had to purchase some doves or he may have been wealthy enough that he was able to bring doves or maybe even doves were for the poor. The others brought lambs, brought lambs from their own flocks. They didn't have their own flocks, if they were city dwellers, if they had something else, they they could purchase them there in the temple courtyard. But they had been established since the days of Moses, maintained in the synagogue worship, that they were to bring sacrifices. And the sacrifices were a symbolic act that the they were offered up to God 
in, in, in honor to God. Offer up to God as a, as a means of expressing, hopefully, that, that God would forgive them for their sins. And the sacrificial system as laid out by Moses continued to be practiced. And this man, Stephen, as they all had been, were brought up bringing sacrifices to the temple according to the law of Moses. But now having met Christ, he knew now that God's perfect lamb, the Messiah, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, had come and had been God's perfect sacrifice. No more was it needful for him to bring doves or a lamb or a bullock to the priest. Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, had come and had paid the penalty for all sin. I want you to understand the significance of that. This gets pretty important. Because there's some other things that had to radically change in his life. I mean, he'd always been doing this. This is the way we've always done it. This is how we go to church. This is how we worship as the people of God. We bring our sacrifices. We give them to the priest. And now, all that's off the table. We don't do that anymore. He had been raised to be dependent upon the priest. As just a good Jewish man, he did not have an audience with God. For him to have an audience with God... He had to bring a sacrifice to the priest. He had to depend upon the priest to somehow represent him to God and somehow represent God to him. But now he's met Jesus. And according to the prophecies of the Old Testament fulfilled in this individual, Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Now there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And they saw that so vividly. They saw that so completely when, when Jesus was on the cross and God reached down from heaven and he took the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place where only one person could go, the high priest, to approach the presence of God and just, God just tore the veil in two, symbolizing that now we have access to God through that one mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. All his life he'd been learning. Listen to me. All his life he had to go to a priest and now... He had the Lord Jesus Christ, and he had direct access to God. Though he'd been taught, particularly as a Hellenistic Jew, that he would hold fast to the teaching that the temple was the house of God. That the temple that had been built first by Solomon, that temple had been destroyed. It had been kind of rebuilt some after the release from the uh, Babylonian captivity. You guys will remember Nehemiah, of course, particularly Ezra, and again, Micah, where they building had kind of gotten plateaued but then of course leading up to the time of Christ Herod the Great had come back and he wanted to be the king of the Jews and he wanted the Jews to follow him he got appointed by Rome he got permission and now you have Herod's temple this massive beautiful edifice and the Jews had this heart tie to the temple he had been taught that the temple was where God dwelt the place to encounter God to meet God to worship God but now in Christ Jesus he is reminded of what God had said through Isaiah. Heaven is my throne, he says in his defense in chapter 7. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, says God. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all things? Now that the Messiah has come and the Holy Spirit has been poured out, those who worship God... Worship God in spirit and truth. You remember the woman at the well when she tried to engage Jesus in a theological debate between the Samaritans and the Jews. And she said, your people say you have to worship in Jerusalem at the temple, but my people say they meant worship here on the mountain. And Jesus' response was, 
What was his response? Jesus says, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Having met Jesus in salvation with the Holy Spirit, having been taught by the apostles who themselves had been taught at the feet of Jesus, Stephen had his whole belief system turned completely upside down. Hey, the law. He sees how it points to Jesus. The sacrificial system completed in in Jesus. The priesthood. Now there's only Jesus, our great high priest. All of the temple practices and rites and rituals were to point and to prepare the way for the Messiah who who had come. They all found their completion in him. And here's the deal. Here's what I want you to get. Stephen's whole belief system was radically changed. Radically changed. If you are taking notes, and I, I wish that you would, I want to start there. The first thing is that Jesus demands everything. The response to the gospel is repentance and faith. It is coming all the way back. It is a complete change, becoming something that you've never been before. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus in his sermon very clearly says that if anyone will be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We see the the call to complete surrender. Jesus is not an add-on to your life. He's not there to make your life better. He's there to give you a new life in comparison. Jesus is not not something that that, that you can say, I want to do what I want to do. I want to do it the way that I want to do it. I think I've got a pretty good life, but just in case, here, let me say this prayer or sign up or sign a card or do whatever I have to do, and I'm happy to add Jesus to my insurance policy, if you will. The call to follow Christ is a call to surrender all and to follow him. Do Do you get that, right? Are you with me? Jesus demands everything. You can't be a follower of Christ while you are holding on to things that you're not willing to let go of. I want to tell you about a conversation I had. I mentioned it in Sunday school. It's just a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to a guy who about the gospel. And we were going all the way through the gospel, the Old, Old Testament, New Testament. He was happy to sit down and talk. When I asked him, you know, who is Jesus to you? He said, oh, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. Jesus went to the cross and died for my sin. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again. But the way he said it, it's just words. It had no meaning to his life. I said, why does that matter? Does it matter? And, of course, I don't know how you share the faith, but the good news is predicated upon the bad news that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin are death. And I made it clear that he understood according to Scripture that all of us have earned the justice of a holy God and that Jesus is our substitute. He is God's gracious provision so that we might be forgiven, so that we might escape that justice. And I went into some detail scripturally what that justice is going to look like. And he had the kind of the statement down pat, but it didn't matter. And I said, well, why does this not matter to you? And here's what it came down to. Again, this was, this was a pretty lengthy conversation. But here's what it came down to. He said, if I give my life to Jesus, I won't be able to drink. And I like to drink. 
And I did not tell him, oh, it's okay, you can drink. The Bible doesn't say there's a, you, you can't drink. I didn't tell him that. You know why? Because until he's willing to give up what he's not willing to give up, he will not be saved. Do you understand? Sometimes it's not a habit. Sometimes it's not just a pleasure. Sometimes it's the attitude predicated upon pride that says, I'm not willing to let anybody else tell me what to believe. I'm not willing to let anybody else tell me that what I think is wrong. I'm not willing to let anybody else dictate what I'm going to do with my life or my future. And yet to know Christ, to be forgiven of sin, to be washed in blood, to, to have an eternity in the presence of a God who loves you. And by the way, this isn't sitting on the clouds and playing harps and, and just kind of floating. Heaven is not the beach, okay? Now, if it's heaven, there will be a beach, okay, in my opinion. But, but it's not vacation. Heaven is not eternal vacation. Heaven is society and it's community and it is relationships under the governance and rule and provision of God in the absence of sin. It is the world as it was intended to be. There's a lot more to that. We won't get into all that. All right, but for, for us to know heaven and for us to have that promise and security, for us to know what it means to be forgiven now, for us to have joy and peace now, to come to Christ, Jesus demands everything. And when you come, let me tell you what he does. He changes everything. I can't imagine what it was like for somebody like Stephen. The guy was no, no idiot, all right? He was smart. He was, he, in chapter 7, when he's given his defense before the Sanhedrin, he quotes passages of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, when, Jesus, when, Jesus, when Stephen stands up to talk to the Sanhedrin and they say, are you guilty of these things? Are you guilty of blasphemy against God? He starts with Abraham and says, let me tell you about God. God called Abraham, promised him a son. And told him he's going to, and he took him through the patriarchs. Are you guilty of blasphemy about Moses? Let me tell you about Moses. When he stood up, and he, if he would have done like me and announced his text, he would have said, today we're preaching from Genesis chapter 12 through Malachi chapter 3. Buckle up. We're going all the way from Abraham through the prophets. Here was a man who was established in his beliefs. And when he met Jesus, who demanded everything, and he surrendered everything, Jesus changed everything. Isn't that great? It's great truth for us to recognize the work that Jesus did in his life and the difference that he made. Stephen got it. Jesus demanded everything. Jesus changes everything. And I don't know your testimony. Some of us were raised in church. Raised to godly parents. We came to Sunday school. We were part of the youth group. We were part of the college ministry. We were part of the business and young business and professional, whatever the different ministries were in the day. And, and you may have been exposed to the truth of, of Scripture throughout your life. And you think, well, there was no radical change in my life. I'm going to tell you that if you've come to Christ, there's been a radical change to your life, whether it happened at 6 years old, whether it happened at 16 years old, whether it happened at 26 years old, whether it happens at 106 years old. There is no salvation without there being 
you being made into something you've never been before, regenerated, made new in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, your external behavior, I was raised in a pastor's family who lived in the parsonage that all the church members drove by on a regular basis. And I was not a rebellious kid any more than most, less than most of you were. How about that? I was a pretty good kid. And so when I got saved, it wasn't severe behavioral modification for me because my parents took care of that. You know what it was? It was a whole awakening to new life. On the inside, the things that I could not understand, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit began to reveal them to me. The hungers I did not have, and all of a sudden I began to hunger for things that I had never hungered for before. I would stumble, I would fall, I would be selfish. But let me tell you something, I had a heavenly father now who disciplined me because he loved me. And who would convict me of sin. And who would rescue me and walk with me and be sufficient for me. Every saved person has had a radical transformation. Jesus demands everything, Jesus changes everything. I'm reminded of the blind man in John chapter 9. I don't know much. Here's what I know. I used to couldn't see, now I can see. Pretty radical change. And as you go through the Christian life, of course, he begins to explain more. I will tell you that one of the things they accused Stephen of was blaspheming Moses in Hebrews chapter 3. We see that the preacher in Hebrews explains that Moses had a role to play in God's redemptive plan. But Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself, Hebrews 3.3. 3. And, and you can look at testimony after testimony in Scripture and Scripture, but I want you to look at your life. Was Paul radically changed? Yeah, we'll get to him. He's coming up. Was Peter radically changed? Yeah, we'll get to him. He's coming up. Was John Mark radically changed? Yeah, we'll get to him. He's coming up. What about you? Have you been radically changed? Jesus demands everything. Have you given it? Jesus changes everything. Have you experienced it? Stephen did. Stephen did. And you know what it did? It gave him courage. So we look at his, we look at his convictions, but we also look at the courage of Stephen because Stephen confronted the world head on. He confronted the world head on. Stephen didn't say, I need, I, need to, I need to be in school for three more years, or I need to get this credential, or I need to get this degree, or I need to have this experience. Or, uh, he did not. You know what he did? Not only in his, in his ministry to make sure that the widows were adequately fed, and that ministry of service was coordinated and done well. He had a ministry of the gospel. The Bible says that he was given the same power to conduct signs and wonders that the apostles were to verify his message because he was delivering a message. And where did he go? He took the gospel home. He was a Hellenist Jew. He went to the synagogue of the freedmen. The freedmen were Hellenist Greek-speaking Jews, possibly the very synagogue that he had been a part of before he came to Christ. And he began to teach them the gospel. He began to teach them about Jesus. And you know what? In every way that he had been challenged in his belief system, he challenged them in their belief system. And boy, did they argue. As a matter of fact, this text, when it talks about the the Jews, it says that these guys, the the synagogue of the freedmen, it says they came from different places. Cilicia, which is Southeast Asia. They came from Alexandria, which was the chief city of Egypt. 
There were some from, uh, um, wait, let me get the, the locations right. We're in chapter 6, Synagogue of the Freedmen. Um, the Cyrenians, that's Southeast Asia. The Alexandrians, Egypt, of those in Cilicia in Asia. Cilicia, by the way, is Southeast Asia, Asia Minor. And the chief city of Cilicia is Tarsus. Do you know anybody from Tarsus? That was very probable. Probably one of the synagogues that the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul the terrorist, attended. As a matter of fact, it is not beyond the realm of, of, of imagination that Stephen and Saul were the two who were leading this d- debate, this discussion over the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Here's what I want you to know. Stephen had the courage of his convictions. He went to the place where he was best known and the experience that he best had, and he presented the gospel faithfully and consistently, and that takes courage. But he did it with wisdom, and he did it with grace. They could not answer him. And when they couldn't answer him, they got frustrated, so they thought, we'll just shut him up. And so they had people accuse him of blasphemy, and they carried it to the Sanhedrin. And when they had an audience with the Sanhedrin, this is the 70, but there were more than that in this room. This was a big crowd. When he, when, when he had the audience, they asked him, are these things true of you? They had false accusers who said, he is, he is uh, blaspheming God. He is blaspheming Moses. He is going to change the traditions that Moses has brought, and he's blaspheming the temple. And by the way, they're called false accusers. I will tell you, all they did was put a different emphasis on, on, on what he was saying because he was indeed saying that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to make everything new. And when confronted in this very intimidating place and they're looking at him, with anger, he knows they can kill him. They've already been locked up. They've already been beaten. The apostles have already been beaten. Jesus was sent to the cross and crucified and he has been telling them the same thing that Jesus has been telling them. And yet with courage and with a face like an angel, he preached the gospel to them. He showed them, first of all, that he wasn't a blasphemer, not against God. That's what that whole first section of chapter 7 is about. That he wasn't blaspheming against Moses. He knew who Moses was. That's what that whole second section about in that sermon is. But he did tell them that there was an old covenant that has been replaced by the new covenant, and the new covenant is in the blood of Jesus Christ. And in Christ Jesus, everything changes. And they're trying to indict him for blasphemy, blasphemy, and he turns the tables on them, and he makes sure that they know he is indicting them for blasphemy against God and against God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Courage! Courage! The ability to stand firm in the face of opposition. The ability to hold fast to your convictions. I want you to know that he was not some... Again, this, my picture of Stephen is not red in the face and, 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 and slobber pouring out the side of his mouth. I'm sorry, that's a terrible picture. I don't know how to describe it. But, but it's not some rabid guy who's on some kind of witch hunt. He's just a solid guy. He's a good man. He's wise, he's full of grace, he's full of truth, he's full of wisdom. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's steady. Whether he is dealing with the Christians, engaged in ministry, doing evangelism at his home church that was not a church because they did not follow the Lord Jesus Christ of the new covenant, or standing before accusers 
He was steadfast and secure. Men, women, we need to be people of courage to stick to our convictions and to convey them. Now again, he was filled with grace. He was filled with chesed, Old Testament word, loving kindness. But I want to tell you something else about him. His courage came from his devotion to Jesus and the gospel. He was willing to do this because of his love for Jesus. He was willing to do this because he knew, already knew, that there was no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved. His love for Christ and his love for, love for others motivated his consistent witness and his willingness to engage. We'll close because I want, to, I want us to look at that last verse there and just take a look at how Stephen is described here. This last verse, verse 15 of Acts chapter 6. Now, before we read the verse, remember the setting. He's been accused of blasphemy. He's been accused of blaspheming all that they held dear. And as we see, as we have seen, he, he is indeed telling them that the old covenant has been supplanted by the new covenant. That doves, lambs, goats, bullocks will not save. Only Jesus Christ can save. That the prophets have foretold that Jesus would come and he came. That the law is not intended to save. The law is intended to demonstrate our need for a savior by our inability to keep the law. All these things he has conveyed to them and communicated to them. And now he's being accused and he's brought before this big crowd. And he's alone. There's nothing in the text that says that he had an attorney or a mediator or a representative or a public defender or a friend to hold his hand or a friend to put his arm around him. He's called on the carpet, standing alone in the middle of a hostile crowd. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Isn't that an amazing testimony? I don't know what I would have looked like in that circumstance, but I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been an angel. I might have looked scared and sweaty. I might have big eyes or closed eyes. I don't know. I don't know, but I do know that there's something about this description that we need to take note of. And again, it's Father's Day. Men, can I, can I, can I challenge you just a little bit? We need men who are courageous. We need men who have the convictions of the truth of the Word of God and are willing to stand on it when it's hard. And we need men who reflect the glory of God. Now, we need women who do that too. Please don't misunderstand me, ladies. We need people, whether you are 13 years old or 30 or 80, who are so filled with the Spirit of God and who have spent such time in the presence of God that when people look at you, they see God. You know, what is the one time in Scripture where we have somebody's face reflecting the glory of God? 
shout it out. What is the one time in Scripture we have somebody's face reflecting the glory of God? Moses. Exodus chapter 33 and 34, where God invites Moses up on the mountain. Moses spends time one-on-one, face-to-face with God as a man speaks to his friend in, in the tent of meeting. But now he has asked God to see his glory, and God has revealed his glory in the train of his glory as he hit him in the cleft of the rock and let him walk past. And as Moses comes down the mountain, and now he's got these commandments, the writings of God, the commandments, the law, that is such a big deal from henceforth in the life of Israel. And he comes down... He had to cover his face with a veil because it was so bright, God allowed his face to reflect his glory. The Apostle Paul, in reflecting on this in first, second, uh, second Corinthians chapter 3, is talking about the problem that Jesus... By the way, Paul went through this same transformation. Remember, Paul was in this argument. He was on the other side of this argument at this time. Jesus had to knock him off a horse to get his attention. So Paul knew this, and he knew the condition of the heart and how hard it was to release and allow the transforming work of God in his life. He knew it. And in 2 Corinthians, when he's writing that letter to the church at Corinth, he talks about the veil continuing to cover the face, or to actually cover the hearts of those who have not seen Jesus. But we now, through Jesus Christ, can see unveiled the glory of God. We now with unveiled faces behold His glory. And we are being transformed out of glory into glory. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And here's the statement that I want to make. When we know Christ on the inside, it is visible on the outside. When we have been transformed, when we have been made new in the Lord Jesus Christ, it becomes visible for other people a pure heart, a heart indwelled with the Holy Spirit, becomes visible to be seen as we allow God's glory to fill us, as we allow God's truth to be upon our lips, as we surrender our lives to Him in salvation, and then day by day by day walking in obedience to Him. It's amazing what God does to change us. A clean heart, a pure heart, is visible outwardly. Peter is, I mean Peter, Stephen is one of the champions of the church. He gets to make his defense. And the next time that we gather from Acts chapter 7, we're going to look at the charge that he was blasphemous against God and blasphemous against Moses and blasphemous against the law and blasphemous against the temple. And we're going to take time to just simply see how the Lord Jesus Christ captured him and used him in that circumstance but here's what I want you to know about, about Stephen. He was willing to give his life for the glory of God in the hopes that those who were witnesses to his message and ultimately his death would be transformed by this same power. As he's being laid hands upon, drug out of the temple, cast down. People are going around picking up rocks and stones. They are angry. They are, they, they are nuts. They are going crazy in anger at him and what he said and what he said about them, partly because it's true, and they know it. And they pick up these stones, and they sling them at them, at him, and they are killing him 
executing him. His prayer is, Father, don't hold this sin against them. His hope, his goal, is not some vengeance or revenge, is not to justify himself. It is to proclaim the truth in order that people's lives are transformed as his had been transformed. He's a real champion, isn't he? God's looking for champions today. He's looking for people who will wholeheartedly follow him. Who will surrender everything and have everything changed. Who will walk in obedience to him with courage. Regardless of the cost. And whose lives externally, visibly reflect the transformation that has taken place internally. by the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't God good? He is good indeed. He is so, so good. So I encourage you today, folks, if you think, I can't do that, I cannot do that, let me just go ahead and affirm your belief. You cannot do that. The call to the Christian life is to do things you can't do and to be what you can't be apart from Christ. And like the song that we sang just before the message, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. God's declaration, Jesus' declaration is, I know you can't. I never said you could. I can. I always said I would. And so how do you get to that point? You get to that point by surrendering and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this example, this man, Stephen. Thank you for... The fact that he was chosen and we have a record of his choosing. Thank you for his character that you developed in him. Thank you for the convictions that he held so firmly that so radically changed his life and then the courage that he had to convey those convictions about the old covenant and the reality of the new covenant through the blood of Christ to convey them to his peers and his families and friends and ultimately before the, the, the Supreme Court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, and then recorded for us, and recorded for history for us. Thank you for the change that you made in his life that was evidence in his countenance that his face, however, however it was done, reflected the glory of God. And Father, we see this not simply as a historical record, but as, as, as a challenge, as motivation, as instruction for us. May we indeed be champions of the church, be champions for Christ, for your glory. Will you use us in that way as we come to you in surrender, as we come to you in faith. In your name I pray. Amen.